You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey everybody, welcome to Music Tectonics. I'm your irregular host for this episode, Tristra Neer Yeager, Chief Strategy Officer at Rock Paper Scissors, the PR firm that specializes in music innovation and music technology. This week, I got to talk to some very interesting people who will be leading conversations at the Music Tectonics Conference this October, as well as some of our past winners from our annual Swimming with Narwhals startup competition. First, I talked to Con Rasso of Tune Global, who told me all about how AI can be used to power experiences, not just crank out content. He also talked about how apps are going local, much like hit songs, as globalization shifts the music business. Then you'll hear some choice moments from our recent seismic event to kick off Swimming with Narwhals. Hear meaningful advice from some of our past winners on the challenges facing founders and how to make the most of events like Music Tectonics. Last, but most definitely not least, I get a chance to chat with Tracy and Robbie DeBarros, the dynamic duo leading Revolu, a new music meets video app. These bold innovators and artist champions shared their thoughts on creators, new monetization approaches, and community in music. And when it comes to narwhals, just a quick reminder, competition applications are open right now. So dive on in, future narwhals. We'd love to swim with you. Hey, everyone. Trister Neer Jaeger here from Rock, Paper, Scissors with Con Rasso of Tuned Global. How are you doing, Con? Hey, Trister. Uh, great, thanks. Um, <laughs> well over this side of the world yeah 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 you're on that you're on the nice chilly side of the world um at the moment and we are in the uh, hot steamy on the hot steamy side so um little bit of envy on my part i have to admit so i wanted to bring you i know you have been thinking a lot like a lot of people in the music business about ai which is Obviously, speaking of hot and steamy is a hot topic. Um, and there's a lot of talk and concern about AI, especially when it comes to AI-generated content, what it means, is it art, is it music, is it human, all those things. But in some ways, the, the excitement around generative AI has masked some of the more important roles that AI might play in the music industry. And I know that you and um, some of your colleagues at Tune Global have been thinking a lot about AI-driven features and experiences and how those might change how we enjoy music. So I wanted to hear how you're thinking about AI less as a generative, um, less in its generative role and more in its other potential roles that could really do some great things for musical experiences. Yeah, no, thanks, Tristra. Um, it's... It's a really interesting topic, and like you said, it's a it's a little polarizing at the moment because the generative thing sort of swamps a little bit of everything else. But um, I think from our side, it's all around how you can provide a better end user experience. And what we found, even in these early stages with us experimenting with AI, is that things that we expected to take um, six or 12 months, we're starting to produce MVPs of those in four weeks. And so what it's doing is really compressing our ability to innovate. And um, real examples there are, some are, real, some are really interesting and simple, and maybe I'll unpack a couple of things just from our experience and, uh, and, may, and comment on where I think some of these things are potentially going to go. I mean, from our experience, obviously everyone's talking about ChatGBT. So our first um, experience was to go to ChatGBT and start to actually look at asking ChatGBT some things about music, some things about me, and what it could actually create as interesting uh, playlists or assistance to curation or things like that. And the results were pretty good. But on its own, ChatGBT couldn't do a whole lot, right? Because it doesn't really know what rights, where are you in the world, all these other aspects. So we've been um, on our side thinking, okay, let's get something that we can actually start to beat a test in the market. And how can you actually now start to allow initially curators and then users to start to use the functionality of things like ChatGBT as a bit of an experimental phase? 
Um, and, and we're doing that right now. We're rolling out betas right now about people able to use ChatGBT in our content management systems to actually create specific type of playlists. Can you walk me through exactly how that works? So if I'm a curator or if I'm working behind the scenes, um, what, what is it? What is the, how does that actually work? What's the workflow like? Yeah, you can actually start, uh, you can go into an existing playlist on our CMS or you can go into a, you create a new playlist and you'll get a little um, AI assistant. And you can just type in like you would normally type into a chat GBT prompt and you can actually follow a chat and say, for argument's sake, we've been using, I'm a, uh, I'm in the US, I'm a male, 23 year old, it's a sunny afternoon and I want a playlist for driving my car fast. <laughs> and, a pretty a pretty common use case, yeah. Produce, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then and then we altered that and said, okay, I'm a female, 32 years old, doing a high aerobic workout, right? And um, so different industries and different ideas. And each time it produces a pretty reasonable set of results, right, for that. And so, um, and what we do, the magic of that on our end is we mix it, we mix that data with our own data to actually understand what do you have rights to based on the catalogue you have licensed, publishing rights, everything else that might be part of that, um, that people don't often uh, consider. And so you're actually able to literally, in the case of what may have taken you from our experience, especially in the fitness industry, somewhere between 10 and 15 hours to curate, you can actually get something that now you've produced in maybe five minutes through some prompts, right? So it's it's amazing, right? And the beauty of this, from my perspective, is if we flip it now to the person who's the owner of the service, we give them so much opportunity to experiment with different types of playlists that can actually um, be targeting different groups. And they don't have to invest the 15 hours. They can invest the five, 10 minutes and actually iterate on that. And I think that's where the value is to when you really start to flip it and say, you know, rather than all oh, AI has taken over the world in some ways, how do I actually use this really powerfully for myself in that regard? Yeah, I also want to make sure we we talk for a minute about something I know that Tune Global has been up to as well with your acquisition of Pacemaker. And I'm wondering how these, mm. you know, people refer to them as AI DJ tools. And, you know, it, nowadays anyone, you know, DJs can, can run the gamut from people who make their own music to people who, um, you know, are, are selecting music for, for an audience or something like that. So can you tell me a bit about what those tools do and how how you see them evolving? Because I can imagine that same swift progress is happening in that realm as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, appreciate you asking that. And I don't want to make it all about Tune Global, but that's a really interesting piece about Pacemaker. And so their technology has a, has a lot of depth to it. And we're working through various things that aren't necessarily the agenda of this podcast, which include radio and a whole lot of other items. But at its simplest level, it actually uses AI to do real-time analysis of audio as it's mixing between audio tracks and actually does voice matching, beat matching, uh, key matching, and actually creates a really custom way that these two tracks transition into each other, which um, which is truly amazing when you see it and you hear it and you go, wow, that's just fantastic. So now when you match those two items together that I was talking about earlier about automatically creating a playlist and now just allowing AI to create this mix over the top of it, what are the impacts here for people who are creating playlists, for people maybe who are in the BGM space and want to create a really seamless background music experience for, um, for their audience? There's so many executions on that. And what we're doing with Pacemaker is we're not limiting it just to the people who traditionally would use our infrastructure and platform. We're actually creating it into small uh, libraries that can be used in other applications. And so really any service around the world will be able to implement Pacemaker technology within their own applications and create a better user experience. So for us, it really aligned because the alignment for us always is how 
much does someone actually use the services of our clients? And I think the real test of that is just how often they listen to uh, songs or uh, podcasts or audiobooks or whatever else we might be offering. And uh, so Pacemaker definitely on that side. The the other bit, which is AI-based as well, um, and I'll, I'll only touch on, and it's probably a topic for another time, is still going on engagement. And I think AI really is around engagement, right? How do you actually improve engagement for people, whether that is suggesting better, better audio tracks, whether it is other aspects of that. Um, we actually um, are rolling out uh, some other pacemaker technology, which is the ability to actually broadcast for any user to broadcast live radio. Wow. And when you think about that as a social tool, you almost start to think of it as a UGC aspect of radio. And how does now how do people now actually put their own personalities across the top of this? And uh, there's a whole lot of other technology and AI technology used in that. But um, again, really exciting. You know, those guys did a, a tremendous job in the development, and we're working, you know, with that team to sort of further that. That's fantastic. Thanks for explaining all of that, Con. I, I want to switch gears a little bit, though it's sort of a related topic. I mean, engagement may be the the leitmotif that runs through all of this, but there's been a, a bit of a, a bit of talk lately, thanks to in part to a report from Will Page uh, about glocalization, which is a word that I personally don't like. It sounds like something that's very unpleasant that happens to you, um, <laughs> to medically, or maybe when you get a cold, you glocalize. Um, <laughs> However, it, it is a helpful term. Um, so for those of you that aren't familiar with it, it basically means that all around the world, different markets are finding more and more interest and engagement with local content, for lack of a better word. So if you look at the charts around the world in countries like Germany, um, who were once pretty much in sync with the US, Britain, um, you're starting to see a divergence. Now, there's always been some markets that have always done their own thing, such as Japan, and to some extent in India. But we're really seeing a lot more pockets of local culture catching on with local listeners, which is pretty exciting. Um, uh, so I'm curious, though, so how do we think about this, not only in terms of of tracks or of content, but also in services and experiences? So what does glocalization mean for experiences? I mean, for I thought of this question, Con, because Tuned Global has been doing some really interesting work in very small markets, markets that are probably not well served by some of the bigger international streaming services, for example, just because their, their artists will be buried in the massive catalog that comes from everywhere else. So you work with a company called M-Jams in, um, on, in some Pacific islands, and you just announced a deal with Tusas in Greenland that is very much focused on local music and on uh, contributing to highlighting, you know, nourishing a very vibrant local scene that's been very scattered in the digital realm. So all that to ask you, um, you know, how do you see glocalization affecting uh, music services and products? And um, what, is the, what is the experience side of this equation? Yeah, no, I, I think um, certainly from, I'm going to say our client's point of view, which is the company that's providing the service often within a local market or a focus on local market, they're often about two things. I think they're definitely about reaching their customers more relevantly. And that could be content and user experience, and, and we'll talk both about both those items. But they're also, I believe, really engaged in how they further their own culture. So how do they give opportunities to artists? How do they allow, and we talk about content, but it's really the user experience about how does that content surface? So when we look at the large streaming providers, I would say that in a lot of cases, they do have content of these uh, smaller markets, maybe not the real niche content, but they have broad content. But it's so swamped by the Western experience that it becomes difficult to find this content and really focus on this content and champion these artists. And I think, you know, um, that's certainly a theme that we're seeing around the world, the Pacific Islands, for argument's sake, you mentioned MJAMs. Um, and they absolutely are passionate about how they allow local artists a 
bigger opportunity to actually monetize and to expose their works to local people. Now, in terms of product, what does it mean? It's, it's a really interesting question because for argument's sake, we, we have also recently launched a service in um, Egypt uh, with a major telco there, um, Etisala. And in, the, in uh, Egypt and working with the Arabic language, there's a lot of nuances that happen within the Arabic language, not only in how people search, but what they search. So our, we had to ensure that our, our system was wide enough. So really unusual ways that people might search for artists. And remember, these areas are not metadata rich areas. I can't just go get a metadata provider and say, I'll plug you in and use you in this way. You have to provide a much more diverse range of services for these guys. In this particular case, and I'm sure there are other cases, is it that people are using cultural references that are very familiar locally, but don't, you know, wouldn't be familiar much outside of Egypt or the Middle East, North Africa. So like say, oh, the guy, the, the, the singer from the film with the bird. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Like, and, the, and if you search for it, it should pull up this one guy in this one track. But that doesn't necessarily happen if you are a programmer from um, Denmark, right? <laughs> and trying to, trying to figure this out. That that that's certainly part of it. It's also, I guess, the colloquialisms and uh, slang, mm -hmm. if you like, that those artists are named as. That may take you to a different area, you say in Thailand, which technically is such a difficult uh, language because there is no s spaces between words; they're inferred. So, how do you actually know when someone's searching? So, these are really complex problems. But um, you know, it's our role to say how does someone actually get to it. But th they're the technical issues to it. I think from the actual product side, it is a focus on how you know. One of our questions that we ask people all the time is, "What's the centre of your world?" And I think that's really relevant in a cultural sense and a globalization sense because it varies from location to location. We all know that, I think we all know that in India, people don't search for artists, they search for actors, right, and actresses. And so what happens in that circumstance when people are actually uh, culturally different in terms of what they're providing in those services? We also provide really interesting in some unusual locations, whether it's the US or um, in Africa, um, services that are faith-based services in those markets, which is really, really interesting because in some cases, they want to keep these things really separate between popular music and mm -hmm. faith. And in other places, they don't. They really want to mix those together. So the nuance of what you're doing makes it really important that you can um, think flexibly. And I think that's the first one. I think you can always act flexibly, but you have to make sure that you're um, able to sort of take an open view and say, okay, I didn't really understand that. How do we actually now put that in place for that particular market, grow that market? On, um, and I will touch on the content side for just a sec. You know, we, we recently did ourselves an announcement um, of the ability to mint royalties um, on Web3 with Revelator. And uh, why we were so excited about that is it actually gave our clients an opportunity now to have a platform in place in local markets where there was a totally different way for artists to monetize. They could monetize traditionally, but or on a user-centric model, whether it's pool-based or user-centric based, but they could also now start to think, do I need to fragment my rights because I've actually got some sort of real need financially right now, not in the future? And so that, that's really been interesting as well in, in doing that. And uh, I would say very experimental in the first rollout of a few markets. And we're looking forward to the next six months in that project. Speaking of which, I think you're touching on that thing that we were all excited about last year, Web3. And I know that Tune Global was really trying to get ahead of the curve a bit and, and provide some pretty um, interesting services for what you know, for that whole blob of stuff we call Web3. 
However, this year is like feeling a little chillier. There's some snow on the ground, but where do you see some little sprouts coming up? Where are there still some promising sides of this technology that you think could really bear some fruit for music? It's like a glass of water, isn't it? We've filled the glass with AI and Web3 has just had to do it <laughs> oh, at the moment. It's splashed right? out on the table all over the place, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Will it make its way back in? You know, I I definitely think um, that... I, I don't think it's bad what's happening with Web3. We're seeing an opportunity where people look at it more realistically i guess some of um the early profit takers are not in that market any longer and we can look at the um i guess the core ability of the technology uh i i would agree with you tristra in terms of just commentary overall on the industry i think people are much cooler this year to web3 having said that um, we're in a really unique position often as Tune Global that we get so many people coming to us weekly with their ideas and understanding how they might be able to use our technology to execute those ideas. And it is really a privileged position because we're able to see some of this awesome technology, um, whether it's Web3, whether it's AI, whether it's MedTech, and go, wow, that's just amazing. You know, uh, I can tell you, I can absolutely tell you that with our team, I say, is there any other time that's better to live than right now? <laughs> I just think it's absolutely exciting. But going back to Web3, I, I definitely think that... Um, Web3, from our perspective, we still believe, um, we're strong believers in where that um, industry is going to go. We think, you know, the economic uh, tides at the moment sort of are working towards businesses that can prove more profitability just because of the economic conditions. But that will switch around and people will start to look at where the opportunities mm -hmm. exist as well. I think Web3 still offers a lot. From our own perspective, definitely the items that we're doing with Revelator which is not a traditional NFT, as I mentioned earlier. It actually is a minting of royalties, but then those products come in through a normal supply chain, which is a really different way to do it and that we've worked together with Revelator on. But um, on um, our metaverse strategy, we've just actually completed um, a skinnable land in both Roblox and Decentraland. And we've been talking to many companies which are both companies that have streaming services and they just want to experiment what happens in an area like Roblox can we actually run maybe live events can we do some games in there and do some things that are interesting that um, add to the web 2 experience uh, but also brands and um, I would say there's still a really interesting uh, and uh, tangible thirst for brands to experiment in this space and where we think that's at at the moment and uh, is we've got it available now it can be reskinned really economically and add music and a whole lot of other media features to those worlds there's games on there you can actually throw yourselves at different boards and see how you <laughs> score and go up to spaceships and do all this fancy and yeah. fun stuff but it's still where we were at, I think, when we talked um, almost 12 months ago, that you need to experiment. And if you can experiment, you're going to find the nuggets on how you can engage with this audience and then grow this audience. We know the demograph demographics of something ro like Roblox is quickly changing from a very youthful audience to starting to actually become a slightly older audience, so much more attractive to uh, marketers. And so... I think, you know, you want to be aware of that and say, so what am I doing in this space that I know whether my users love this or hate this? That's great. I love that you've built sort of a laboratory, a white label laboratory for people to play around mm. with these things. Well, I can't wait to talk more with you and your colleagues from Tune Global and everyone else at Music Tectonics. Thanks for taking the time to get us warmed up and excited for what's to come. Thanks, Richard. Great to share. Now let's drop into our seismic activity event for startups. You'll hear a few words of advice and some thoughts on the Swimming with Narwhals pitch competition from experienced founders. 
The first guest is Jessica Powell, founder of AudioShake. Then you'll hear Zan Schwinn of Bia, followed by Jaquel Horton of Fave. This is just a taste of my conversations with these past Narwhal winners. Find a video of the whole event on Music Tectonics' YouTube channel for more insights and more details on the Swimming with Narwhals competition. That's great. So let's talk for a second about your story or Audio Shake's story. As you know, you you won the Narwhal competition. Um, I'm curious what the experience was like during the competition and then what kind of business do you feel like that the whole competition process helped you do at Music Tectonics? Um, so I would say, you know, we were going to go to Tectonics anyway. I'd heard really good things about the conference. I also am a sucker for the beach. So I feel like I'd already heard good things, but I was also like, and it's at the beach. Um, and I'm in San Francisco and it's cold and foggy all the time. So it just seemed like the perfect place um, to go. And I already knew some startups that were going. So it all, it all just kind of seemed like a natural place to be. Um, it was a super easy process um, and very friendly. And uh, when we got there, again, very, very straightforward. You just got up, you did your thing. Um, I actually thought it was great compared to some other ones I've done. Like we did South by Southwest and they have this buzzer and you would just see like team after team, literally three words from their ending, you know, just get like, just like kind of brutally cut off. And I understand it when you have like huge like time constraints and tons of teams pitching, but I just felt like it was a much friendlier, like low key kind of thing. Um, which is not to say that you can go over, but like, no, one's going to cut you off in those, like when you have a, a sentence left. Um, I also thought it was really useful, like being up on stage, right. Um, when we started, we were all coming from tech, not from the music industry. We didn't know many people in music at all. And so being able to get in front of a bunch of music people, um, is really valuable, right. Being able to, to describe, um, like your product and everything. And then people come up to you afterwards. And I think that, um, you know, I stayed in touch with some of the startups that were part of my cohort and they all felt very similar. Like it was actually really positive for them to be able to get up and pitch and then have people come afterwards. So um, all in all, it was a really uh, great experience. And I lo really loved also that it was a mix of startups and, um, you know, like DSPs and, and other kinds mm -hmm. of companies. I would love to now bring on Zan Schwinn of BIA. Zan is a full stack strategist, which sounds, I love that. I don't, I, that sounds, that sounds amazing. Um, a seasoned on, entrepreneur and is currently co-founder and CEO of BIA, the world's first platform making singing for health accessible to the masses, which as a singer is super close to my heart. And I love it. I love singing for health. It is, it is indeed like great exercise and great for your heart and soul. So um, excited to talk to you some more, Zan. So how was the overall conference impacted where BIA ended up? Well, I think connecting to the industry, especially since Narwhals is one of these, um, your one degree of separation from literally everyone in the industry, that um, being that niche can have ripple effects that go on for years and years and years. I mean, um, I just think the community aspect in, in and of itself, you know, allowing yourself to be, to be able to socialize with other startup founders within the music industry, just as an experience itself is great. I think being able to pitch in an environment that's friendly rather than, you know, really, really intense, but still has that structure where you can grow and you can learn is important. Um, and then obviously, winning like press is always helpful for all things. So we like to think so, but <laughs> it's great to hear that from you too. All right. We got in one last minute, is there any general piece of advice that you would love to share with other founders or people who were, when you first jumped into the swimming with narwhals pool, any, any little bit of wisdom, small tip ideas that you want to share? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, as it was kind of mentioned in the first conversation, you know, pitching to angels and VCs for funding as a music tech company can inherently have its own um, uh, blocks, um, blockers, you know, there are red flags around licensing in all of these different areas. And I think that um, there are giants that have come before us as startup founders, you know, startup is no longer new. And so I encourage you to reach out to other people within the industry asking them about how they overcome some of those questions that happen, not just in funding conversations, but in partnership conversations, because I know that it can be a little bit trickier to be a music tech founder 
Um, it's hard enough being a founder in and of itself, but within this space, I would lean on your community. I would use this as an opportunity to connect with other founders, go for coffee, talk about the challenges that you've had and learn from each other. Because for me, that's been the most helpful um, part of my journey as a startup founder within this space. Um, and I think that this community is a really great place to um, build that for yourself and an opportunity for you to find those connections. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Next, we're going to talk to Jaquel Horton. She is the founder of Fave, as I just <laughs> and Fave is a platform dedicated to empower to empowering super fans with partnerships and investments across the biggest entertainment companies and artists in the world. I was wondering if you could share some of your experiences as pitching. I mean, as as, as I mentioned when I introduced you, this was one of the first sort of public reveals yeah. of of the platform. How did that feel? What kind of, you know, how did you, how did the feedback help you or not? What was that like? Yeah. I mean, it was a pivotal moment, this pitch competition, because it was, as we said, the first time where I talked about choir at that time, it was called. Um, and I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't even want to at first. It was like, a, wait, I don't know if I should do this. Like, it's not ready yet, you know, and got the encouragement to, to, to do it. Came on. I guess a virtual stage as we've all related to poured my heart out and the feedback from the chat was things that I still remember today, seeing something pop up and how people were interpreting what I was saying and, and putting it in not my like storytelling mode, which I was doing for the pitch, but hearing how they interpret it as business opportunities, deals they wanted to strike. All of this was super helpful and to hone in on who was saying that and why they were saying it. And I really took the comments as like strategy to understand how people would interpret the concept. The, the people who I met in doing that, obviously following up with those people, some of those people are in the chat now, right? Kelly is here, even Dimitri, even the judges, right? Like still talk to them almost daily, right? They're still deep in the strategy of fave met through this competition. Um, and I think it was, it was just one of those times where you have as a founder, this belief that the world should be a certain way. You are confused why the world isn't that way. And you want to translate that, right? And so you, again, kind of pour your heart out into this, but to see people's reaction and interpretation of it was super rewarding. And I would say that was the coolest thing to come of it outside of all of the connections made, right? I love that you dived in just a second before you thought you were ready. <laughs> like, yeah, I would have standing at the edge of the pool, you know, is going to be cold. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, at that point I was, I was, I'm a sole founder, but I was the only person working on fave. I think mm. a few weeks later I said, okay, I think this is going somewhere. Maybe I need to have somebody. It was a vision. It was a vision, right. That was materializing where I was trying to find some uh, uh, developer to like build it out. But if I didn't get that encouragement, it would have, I, it would have probably still been in my back pocket as some idea to do one day, but because it came here and made it, made it real for me, um, yeah, it set everything off without question. Amazing. So any advice for folks, especially people who may be at that, I may be just a touch too early phase, yeah. how to approach starting, uh, jumping into a pitch competition like this. What would you, yeah. what would you, what would you have told yourself back then? Yeah. I mean, what you get intimidated by at that stage is thinking that nothing is ready. I'm sure every founder year five years in don't think they're no one thinks they're ready right it's always oh let me just wait for this next deal let me just wait for the so you will never feel ready and especially at the point where let's say you some founders may not even have an incorporation right or they haven't talked to anybody else about it or etc cetera, etc cetera. the best thing you can do is use this as a, a feedback a user research a, a panel and get the way that you're telling the story as this kind of muscle that you build, right? Again, get the feedback and hear what people are hearing when you think you know it. Again, this is obvious to you, but if it's not obvious to others, you get that practice. Um, and just start, right? And just see how you feel when you say it. Um, it is a muscle that you have to build. So I very much agree. Just try to do it as much as possible. But um, there's no right moment or gut feeling or anything. This is the time you have to just be opportunistic with these kinds of things. And you will, even if you feel the pitch itself didn't go well, or you don't win the competition or whatever, the experience and the people that you meet along the way are well worth every second of it. So don't hesitate if you are, this is very worth it. 
Is your startup a narwhal? Applications are now open for Music Tectonics Swimming with Narwhals startup pitch competition. Apply at musictectonics.com by August 8th, 2023. That's also where you'll find eligibility requirements, a timeline, and some helpful FAQs. Forget unicorns and shark tanks, apply to Swimming with Narwhals and join Music Tectonics community of music innovators. You could be one of four finalists in the spotlight at Music Tectonics 5th Annual Conference, October 24th through 26th in Santa Monica, California. It's the place to be for music innovation startups, whether or not you reach the finals. We'll have a startup carousel demo day on the Santa Monica Pier. Panels and networking with everyone you need to meet, from investors to labels, and a very special startup boot camp at the Universal Music Group offices. Come swim with the Narwhals, apply at musictectonics.com, get your conference badge, and meet us in California. Hey everybody, this is Tristra New Year Jaeger of Rock, Paper, Scissors, and I am here today talking to Tracy and Robbie DeBarros. Tracy is the CEO and Robbie is a COO of a brand new uh, video app called Revolu. So thanks so much for talking to me today, Tracy and Robbie. Thank you, Tristra. Thank thanks you. for having me. <laughs> awesome. So first of all, since you guys are new to the scene, um, I would love if you could tell everyone a li- in one minute, if you can, what mm-hmm. is Revolu? Sure, I'll take that one. Um, it's it, it's the revolution of music video entertainment. I know that's a lot soundbitey, but um, it really is revolutionary, and that's where we got our name from. Revolute, it's a derivative of that. Um, so we've created a way to create a whole new music video product, a whole new way to enjoy music video, engage with music video, a whole new way for artists and rights holders to monetize the music video and fans to engage with it. And it's, uh, it allows, uh, so basically a music video is broken down into four sections and uh, you can have, there's four, four versions of each section. So that's four to the fourth power. And um, you can remix, create and share 256 versions of one video in a nutshell. That sounds extremely fun. So yes. let's talk a little bit about engagement because it sounds like Revolu is really built for people to do cool stuff and, and engage with content in a new and creative way which is very much on trend. That's very much what people are wanting to do with music nowadays. A lot of fans don't want to just listen passively. They want to get involved and remix and play around with things. So if people aren't experts in video editing or in making music, um, they need some guidelines, right? Like they want to get started. They want to do something that's fun, that's just creative enough so it feels like they've done something and they've heard or seen things in a new light. But it can't be so open-ended that they don't know how to start. I mean, that's always been a big problem with music and music creation is the sort of cold start problem. You don't know how to get going. It's very complicated. So how, as you were thinking about Revolu and thinking in general, like this would be really cool, how did you solve that problem and find that golden mean between um, guiding users and letting them cut loose and do fun, creative stuff? We like to talk about viewers. Sure. Um, and uh, viewer experiences and, and things like that. But yes, um, I, I think from a, our app from a viewer experience is very easy to use. It's very friendly. It's, it's you know remix create. That's the easy part. I think from a creating a Revolu experience, we've worked hard to make that process. Um, you know, we're constantly refining it. We recently um, added. We're adding some AI technology. That, uh, to Revolu as well, that's really going to lower the barrier to creating a Revolu. Because right now, when you create a Revolu, okay, so when an artist creates a music video, um, okay, so let's, let's talk a major artist. They're doing five hours to eight hours of footage. And this is this has been totally been my, you know, professional music video directors and so forth and so on. So even at five hours, you're looking at 300 minutes. The average music video is, you know, three minutes these days, some are less. The hip-hop videos are two minutes and change. So, um, you know, you're only getting to use one percent of that content. So this, you know, ninety-nine percent of your content goes unused. That's you know, that's a lot of uh, content that goes to waste. Um, so when 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 those artists can repurpose that content and create you know multiple versions of their video, but that's a labor-intensive process. Um, not, I mean, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. Let me get that wrong. That it, it's more labor-intensive than the the new version that we're willing to offer people now. The original version is great because 
it, it adds much more. You can do so much more with it, right? But we've lowered the barrier to where a, a kid who doesn't, you know, a, a girl who's playing the guitar and she's singing and she wants to make a music video, but she doesn't have maybe, you know, $500 or $1,000 to make a music video. We've, we've made it so that uh, for, for $29, she can create a music video with Revolut that's totally engaging and not a music video. She can create a Revolut music video that has 256 versions to it and still put that on YouTube and then also monetize that on Revolut and get some of that money back. So that's interesting. So we've really lowered that barrier uh, to really speak into what you were talking about as far as um, ease of use. Cool, So, but viewers from their experience, it's pretty mm -hmm. much seamless and they can just play around with the parts and it doesn't oh, yeah. feel, it, there's, it's oh, yeah. pretty easy to figure out. Oh yeah, it's, uh, there's there, there are two buttons on the UI. One says remix and one says create. <laughs> awesome. I think the two button solution is uh, is something that a lot of a lot of creative um, apps <laughs> could employ. That's pretty amazing. So, you know, when we when we spoke earlier, Tracy, you talked to me a little bit about your the way you were seeing things going in the music industry, and and that you saw some real potential in ads in new places. And you know, for instance. Spotify had their stream on event earlier this year. And while they sort of emphasized their video or repivot to video, I think they pivoted to video like three or four times. Um, but there was a lot of room in there and was kind of unspoken for advertising. So clearly, this is on a lot of people's minds. How, how do you see ads and the music business? How could they work together beneficially to sort of help people on all sides instead of, for example, becoming a nuisance or a detriment to user experience? Uh, right. So I think that, um, first of all, when you talk about advertisers, right, that's how you're going to, we're an ad supported service, right? So we really want to create a value proposition to them that is something that they haven't seen before, right? And something that creates a lot of value. And, and we, we, we've, 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 we've checked the boxes. We've done it. Um, with a Revolut music video, one brand can have four unique ads that create 256 versions of a music video and every person who creates that one of those versions is going to see the ad every time so we've kind of taken the approach where we can do, you know doing doing direct deals but not just doing direct deals doing direct deals and offering not just one ad but because you're going to remix that video just like you have four different versions of the first of the first verse of the song or the first in, the intro or whatever you can have four different versions of that pepsi ad or that burger king ad or that t-mobile ad Plug, plug, plug. You guys can send the stuff to me. So I'm just, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you, you can you can um, give them more, and also yeah. the, the the things that they want to talk about is viewability. And, you know, what I'm saying uh, um, and and uh, uh, engagement. You know, CRTs. You know, um, but when it comes to you know being able to offer, you know, uh, you know people skip videos. People, I mean, ads. People skip ads. Our ads are unskippable. And they're also short ads. I think that that's just part of the solution, right? You don't need to do a 30 second ad, you know, mm -hmm. you can, but I mean, it doesn't take that long to trigger a response is what I'm saying, right? So I believe short <laughs> ads, to answer your question, mm -hmm. what's around about, short ads, um, given multiple options and, you know, 100% deliverability to their target market. And also, let's say if, if we're blessed to do, a, 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 I'm not gonna name an artist, but a, a name brand artist, right? Top tier. We already know what that audience, uh, that demographic looks like. We have deep numbers on it. Everybody, we, that this information is available out there. So when we can go to directly to that particular artist group of advertisers who would love to put their product or service rather in front of that music video, you know, that's something that you can't is you know, kind of dial into. Yeah, music is a great proxy for. Uh for personas, right. right? It's very easy to figure out who exactly you're targeting. Exactly. So, I mean, if you know the fan base of this particular artist, then we can work backwards and reverse engineer that and understand exactly, hey, this is a, you know, girls from, you know, 12 to 16 or 14 to 18 or, or you know, a, a demographic is wide, whatever it is. And, and those, and, and the tweens, uh, you know, tweens have a trillion dollar a year, uh, you know, spending a, 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 a budget, you know what I'm saying? They spend, and they don't have jobs. You know what I'm saying? So I mean, it's it's you know what I'm saying? It's incredible. That's a that's a highly coveted market. <laughs> um, so when you can offer uh, advertisers the ability mm -hmm. to put their guarantee them that people are going to see their ads, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah. So, Robbie, when we when we spoke earlier, you mentioned um, community as a big focus for Revolu. How are you guys imagining community unfolding um, in in apps like this? Like, how are how are online communities changing in the music world? Well, let me put it like this. I think I think it's going to be easy, right? We, we talk about all of our, our technologies and, and, and things of that nature, which are incredibly exciting, right? Absolutely. But for me, I have to say, I'm more excited about the community that we're, we're intending to build and we know how to do it. It's easy. We, we're building our community to, to, to have the environment and the vibe, something that we would want. We base everything on what we would want, right? How would I feel? How would we feel? If we went to a platform and they did this or they offered this or they had that. Right. And it's all like Tracy mentioned earlier, like it's all about the value that it creates. Right. So if something doesn't create value on both sides, right, both sides for us as a business, but also for the people who are coming to our to our platform, whether they're a creator or maybe there's someone who is just a, a lover of, 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 of what someone else has has created. Right. It needs to create value. And if it doesn't, if we can't say with certainty that it does, we're, we're not going in that in that direction. You know, and you touched on something earlier, Trista, where you mentioned like, um, you know, in terms of you said where children don't understand uh, something or people don't understand or creators don't understand how to make a video. That's one of the things that I, I'm so excited about and I can't wait for. This is going to be a, a, a community where when you come to Revolu, you're coming with intentionality. Right. We do have a social layer to Revolu. Right. We offer a lot of the, the typical kind of features that most social media platforms offer because people love those. Right. We want to give them that, too. But it's really not the place where you're going to come to to post the pictures of your lunch or you're arguing with your other half and you're venting here. You're going to come because either you, you heard about a new Premier Revolu, or or you're coming to check out what's hot in, in, in music, or maybe you saw you saw a, a, a promo of a, a podcast that we're going to be doing where we're talking about monetization and we're educating these young artists on what that even means, right? That's like one of the words that's all over the place. People talk about monetization all the time, but what does that truly mean to an artist? And how do you do it? And how do you do it in the way that's going to create the most value for you? Those are the things that, again, that. I'm super excited about. Um, and I know I'm not alone in that. Amazing. So Tracy and Robbie, you mentioned rights holders and bootstrapping. And those two things don't always go together completely harmoniously, though, of course, that's changing a bit. I'm wondering if you have any advice for other music tech companies out there who are getting started about how to approach licensing and how to think about it, because you guys took it really seriously and really tried to do it right. So tell us a bit about that experience and what you know, what you would tell other entrepreneurs coming up. Well, I would say, you know, because first thing, if you don't know coming into the space, obviously you have to do your research, consult a lawyer if you, if you, you know, um, go to the library. The, the information is out there. Chat GTP. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but watch out, you could get some. You know, you know that's not. Yeah, don't hallucinate yeah. your way to a <laughs> licensing <laughs> agreement. <laughs> you gotta be careful there. But no, there's resources out there. There's good information. If you're if you're ambitious and smart enough to do that, I would just say you know get the information, find out uh, wh- wh- where your service is, how your service is defined, what kind of service you are, and there are rules, mm-hmm. and just follow the rules. You know, and be proactive when, when it comes to just protecting people's rights. Yeah. How did you find the outside expertise you needed? Well, you know, I, I, me, myself, I, I, had, I came up with this idea to create these interactive music videos. And, was, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't have a background in entertainment. I was an early adopter of the Internet, but I didn't have the skill sets to build a streaming service. I didn't really know what it all entailed, but I did have the uh, uh, ambition enough to go out and say, you know what, whatever it is, I can learn. And I basically taught myself. I had to go out there and actually read and discover uh, and what, it, what, it, what, what we were actually building. What, we, what, 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 a digital, what kind of a digital service provider were we? You know what I'm saying? What, you know, what are we doing? And it was just the you know, trial and error, discovery. And um, you can do, I mean, I believe I can do anything. So that's me. <laughs> I love it. It's very, it's, it's inspirational. So you, you, and this business isn't simple. So it's amazing. No, um, no, 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 no. You dove in and we're like, you know, I'm not going to be deterred. I'm going to go and make this thing. Right. But you know what though, Trista, I mean, in the music, if anybody in the music business that's listening to this, 
um, they will tell you that even the most seasoned music professional can get lost in the weeds when it comes to licensing. It's a oh, very, absolutely. very, uh, you know, oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a sticky, right? Robbie, Robbie, Robbie knows and, and, and Robbie's a good study and we're studying and we're, you know what I'm saying? And understanding and, but really there are different use cases and this and that and the third, and it gets really, um, can get really, you get lost. In, like I said, seasoned professionals that have, you know, 20 years in the industry, you know, as you know, it can, it can be a challenge. So, you know, Nobody knows everything. I think that one of the things that you touched on, you talked about it, how to refine the resources, um, hiring the best people and having the best people around you. Surround yourself with a good team. That's great advice. All right. Thank you so much for talking to me today about Revolut and all the exciting things going on in the music industry right now. And I mean, just the amazing story of jumping in and building something. I love it. Thank you. Hey, do you have your ticket for the Music Tectonics Conference yet? Now is the perfect time to grab one before early bird tickets fly away for good. If you go to musictectonics.com right now, you can get a conference ticket for just $249. On August 15th, the price goes up to $350. That ticket gets you in to three days of connecting with the music innovators you need to meet to grow your business and your network. On October 24th, 25th, and 26th, 2023, we're planning a seismic keynote with Mengru Kwok, BandLab CEO, a music tech carnival with innovative demos, high-energy panels with music techs, movers, and shakers, and lots of opportunities for networking and getting business done. It all goes down by the beach at unexpected venues in Santa Monica, California. Don't miss those early bird tickets to the music tech event of the year. Get yours at musictectonics.com. While you're there, check out our growing speaker roster to see who you'll meet at Music Tectonics. See you there. Thanks for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We have new episodes for you every week. Did you know we do free monthly online events that you, our lovely podcast listeners, can join? Find out more at musictectonics.com. And while you're there, look for the latest about our annual conference and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. Everything we do explores the seismic shifts that shake up music and technology, the way the Earth's tectonic plates cause quakes and make mountains. Connect with Music Tectonics on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's my favorite platform. Connect with me, Dimitri Vitsa, if you can spell it. We'll be back again next week, if not sooner. You're listening to Music Tectonics.